Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I paid the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Back here on Fizz 5 with Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Ezer. A lot of basketball to talk about now that football is by the wayside. Basketball in full effect. You know, lacrosse is in a couple of weeks, but we don't do that much of talking about lacrosse on Orange Fizz, which is why basketball in this midseason stretch is so important because, hey, as we get into the weeds of March and April, I think everyone on Fizz is hoping that basketball is continuing, so there's more to talk about with Bayheim squad Carter how's it going I'm good Cam I'm uh thank you for asking first of all and uh you're correct in what you said basketball is king right now of course usually is in Syracuse but especially for us we'll have a little bit about lacrosse coming up on uh on the orangefizz.com but for now we're really in the thick of things in basketball so we've got a lot to talk about today when it comes to that and a 13-7 and seven team that the record might look good, but then you look deeper into conference play in those opponents. And we'll touch on the NCAA tournament aspirations of this team. We'll also mention recruiting Adam Weitzman, offering two NIL deals per uh, a Twitter mention. So we'll see what, what, what comes with that. Talking about the recruiting world, talking about a couple Syracuse basketball players, and of course, reacting to SU's last game, a win over Georgia Tech. So with that in mind, Let's head into topic number one. Number one. And before we get into topic number one, again, check out our website, theorangefizz.com, for all your daily, weekly, whatever it may be, coverage of Syracuse basketball, football, and recruiting in both of those sports. And the reason I mention that is I've had a couple articles posted about Syracuse's most recent result, a win over Georgia Tech, a big one. SU dropped 80 points, 40 in each half. Big performances by Joe Girard. He scored 28. Malik Brown off the bench with 18. I think there was a stat that I want to say it was John Eads, one of our other Fizz staffers, that posted something on Twitter lauding not just the stat line of Malik Brown, but also the historical value behind it. And the reason I shout out John Eads as he was broadcasting that game and he said Malik Brown's eight field goals in SU's win over Georgia Tech are the most by a Syracuse bench player since Torian Thompson notched 10 back on December of 2016. So Carter my guess is your instant reaction is something along the lines of Malik Brown but what else you got? Oh we'll have plenty to say about Malik Brown today I'm sure and and he was certainly a part of this win but my immediate thought coming out of the gate, you know, finishing off this game, a 17-point win, is that this is what a team that's finding its stride looks like. This is midseason form. When you, when you talk about a team finding midseason form, this is about as good as we've seen Syracuse look. I know that Georgia Tech is not very good. Only Louisville is preventing the Yellow Jackets from sitting in the bottom of the ACC. I would say the Virginia Tech win is probably more impressive when you put it in context and you realize that the Hokies are pretty good, even without Hunter Couture. They didn't have him that day. We'll, we'll see a little bit more about you know how they really play uh, in a couple days later this week when Syracuse goes down to Blacksburg. But anyway, Syracuse did a lot of things right against Georgia Tech. They played a pretty similar game 
to what uh, what the Orange did against Virginia Tech. And uh, one thing that jumped out to me was that this was by far Syracuse's best road performance of the season. SU hadn't had a lot of road games so far, and a couple of them that count as road games were actually like, you know, you, you read it and you read the fine print and it's actually in Brooklyn. So it's not like a true road game. You look at the places they've been. The Notre Dame game was a, a one-point win against an Irish team that's kind of middling. You know, that's not too impressive. And then some other ones that really just got them down. You know, the Illinois game comes to mind as a really bad road performance. So Syracuse had to go down to Atlanta. Georgia Tech isn't that great, but you still have to play well. You still have to beat the teams you play. And uh, even then, the Yellow Jackets started out pretty good in this game. Nine of 13 on their first 13 shots. I mean, they were bombing SU to start with and I think got ahead by about 12 at least by double digits. And then Syracuse went on this outrageous run. I think it was like 17 to nothing run later in the first half and just snatched the game away and never gave it back. You know, that's, that's what that maybe not good teams do, but teams that are better than these bad teams do. Syracuse saw what was facing it there, a team that had started hot in its own building and just took it away from Georgia tech. And for an SU team that is really trying to, inch its way towards bubble territory that's big because SU doesn't have a lot of super impressive wins this season but even wins over bad teams that aren't quad one quad two you can still be impressed by the way a team plays I mean SU has lost games in the past I mean you think about they lost to Pittsburgh last year and uh, even this year the the loss to Bryant kind of sticks out as an ugly one Syracuse can't expect to win and it took care of business on the road against Georgia tech in a conference game. That's an important thing. Also learned a lot about the depth. I think this is the deepest team that I remember under the tutelage of Jim Beheim. Uh, Justin Taylor, Chris Bell, you thought those would be the two Fords that would headline as, uh, as the new freshman coming in. Quittier Copeland played 17 minutes after he was a no show in what feels like the last month. Right, Malik Brown came off the bench and did what he does, uh, and not what he did a couple games ago, where you thought, okay, Malik Brown is dropping back down into uh, into irrelevancy. Uh, and Benny Williams doesn't have a great game, but it doesn't matter. I, I just thought I learned a lot about the depth of the Syracuse team. Okay, of course, Joe Girard, 28 points, second most he scored in his career, most since his freshman year, just the third time he's hit six or more career uh, or six or more threes in a single game in his career. Again, this is a guy that started over 100 games. But I, I just, I mean, individually, yes, you can point out Malik Brown's 18. You can talk a lot about uh, how... JG3's 28 was complemented by Jesse Edwards, 14 and 7. Judah Mintz with 13 points and 6 assists. That's exactly what you need out of him. Of course, you'd like him to score more, but you're fine with that. But the fact that this team has so much depth that Benny Williams and Justin Taylor play a combined, I think it was 13 or 14 minutes. Chris Bell plays a Chris Bell game where he starts, plays 18 minutes and has, what was it, like one point, didn't really do anything. And you still have valuable production, maybe not on the score sheet, but you have valuable production from a Quittier Copeland coming off the bench. I've just learned a lot about the depth of this team that wasn't evident to start the year. Malik Brown has shown flashes and he's shown time and time again, 
if he was playing like this under any other head coach, he'd be starting. He'd be one of the starting forwards. But I'm loving the depth on this team. I think they're hitting their stride. And by they, I mean the starters and the bench at the right time. And what I've learned about Syracuse, and this might be shocking to say, Carter, is I don't think they need a good Benny Williams. I don't think they need a really good performance out of either Chris Bell or Justin Taylor. You have one of those players flop, and you have guys that can come in and be successful. That's what I learned the most about this team. So big win for Syracuse, 80-63. to 63. The Orange now 13-7. and seven. But now they look on to possible quad one wins in which they don't have any this year. North Carolina would be a quad two victory. Quad one would, uh, would be at Virginia Tech and at home against Virginia. So those are games to definitely look at. We're going to talk about this team in terms of the tournament on the other side. Let's head to topic number two. Number two. So, Carter, the reason I mention quad one, quad two, and why that's so important, I think Syracuse is 8-0 against quad four teams, which means that those teams are in the bottom quadrant of teams, whether you take into account strength of schedule or or, or all the above, all the little intricacies of what makes a um, a team schedule hard and uh, and which conference they play in and all. Like For example, Oakland's a quad four team. Right. And a quad one team would be at Virginia Tech, a team that was once ranked or home against Virginia because they are a ranked team. So that's what I mean by the quad one through quad four. And why that's important is even though Syracuse is 13 and seven, and even though this team at times has shown, okay, six and three in the conference, and they're blowing out teams here or there, and they're proving that they can stick with a ranked Miami. They don't have that statement win, which is so important to getting into the tournament. I I was reading an article um, just the other day saying that SU has a 0% chance to make the tournament at this juncture, right? If they they stuck with this record. When you look at the state of Syracuse men's basketball, is this a tournament team from what you've seen, Carter? Uh, From what we've seen so far, my answer is no, but it's not a resounding no. And I think by the end of the year, depending on what happens, it very well could be, even though things are not great right now with regards to the quads. Um, you know, what you said about, you know, breaking down the quad one through four wins, you know, kind of a metric in college basketball to track which teams have played better against tougher schedules than others. You know, for example, Purdue is your best team against against quad one teams. The Boilermakers are seven and one against quad one teams, Kansas seven and three, Alabama six and two, and so on, right? Syracuse is 0 and three. It's one and two against quad two and four and two against quad three. I know that's a lot of numbers, but eight no against quad four, which no one's really impressed by. That's not fooling anybody. Um but Syracuse has lost those games for a reason. I think that the only quad two win was Virginia Tech. Am I yeah, right? I was. Yeah. Saying that at home, right? So a Virginia Tech team minus Hunter Couture is your best win on the season. That's not wonderful. Um, SU has chances coming up, though, to try and do some work, maybe not in quad one, but at least in two uh, to, to get the record up a little bit and to 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 build that resume just a little bit more even if Syracuse had just sealed the deal against Miami my answer to this question will be yes right away I, I wouldn't have had to qualify it with a whole bunch of nonsense but 
Syracuse blew both games it had against Miami last year, 18 point leads, both of them lost. And then this year had, uh, had the game seem like in hand. It was 11 uh, or 12. I'm pretty, the lead was 11 or 12 at one yeah, point. Yeah. Played a really good game against Miami. And again, just, just folded up. So that was pretty unfortunate. And, uh, that is a loss that I think no matter how Syracuse finishes the year, whether it's not in the NCAA tournament or whether it's in the tournament as a low seed, you'll look at it and you think, man, that was one that they really could have used. Uh, because at the moment, it, it kind of looms like uh, like a missed extra point or something. You're kind of like, ah, you know, that <laughs> that, that may hurt them eventually. Um, that being said, I do think uh, Syracuse by year's end could theoretically make the tournament if a lot of things break its way you know that kind of sounds like uh you know someone in a in a dewitt bar just kind of talking to you about <laughs> about what they think it's it's not very rational but that was a maze carter that was a ma- you went from might probably could there's a chance uh, <laughs> i will offer up a suggestion <laughs> right yeah it's not uh not 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 my most straightforward answer um so I'll say at the moment, no, clarifying again, but uh, at by season's end, if certain things happen, I think you could see it. I think it could be a surprising result um, as a low seed in the tournament, a lower seed uh, by ACC standards. You know, 10 wins in 13 games is good. You know, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you want to divide it up by quads, um, you know, what it suggests is a team that's playing good ball. Um, but... Syracuse has uh, has things in its own hands, right? It needs to beat better teams, and it needs more things from certain players t- to get that done. Uh, Chris Bell and Benny Williams were both terrible against Georgia Tech, which was especially discouraging because it's not like Tech is a great ACC team. They were combined 0 for 4 from the floor. I mean, you get no points on field goals from your starting forwards. That's just brutal. 26 minutes between them. And and we'll talk about the forwards more in a little bit. But, you know, like you said earlier, the depth for this team is going to be the key. I, I agree with you when I when you said that this might be the deepest team that Bayham has had since we've been here over the last four seasons. We used to get after him for not using his bench very much, but he didn't have benches like this one. You know, he, he has better players off the bench now who all perform a certain role and do it pretty well. Uh and if Syracuse wants to have a chance against some of these better quad one, quad two teams, it needs more from those guys, and it also needs more from its forwards. So if those things happen and they get those wins, then maybe it's a low seed tournament team. You see what I'm cooking here? It's like a, yeah. th- there, are, there are qualifiers here. But at the moment, what Syracuse has done, if the tournament was tomorrow, they're out. Yeah, 100%. As a talented collective, this is a tournament team. and But the issue is the tournament – isn't faulty in how it's made. There's a reason there's so many division one teams and even those with great records aren't able to make it right. It has everything to do with, and you've talked about those quads. It has everything to do with that metric. And I think that's a strong metric because if not, you'd have a mid-major team. And of course, a lot of them, it's that they have to win their conference tournament uh, and they're ultimately in but if you didn't have that metric, then you'd have a team that's 30 and three that's played, you know, the teams that you've never heard of get in. So at the current, at this current juncture, no, they're not a tournament team as a talented collective. Yes. 
This team's really talented, really, really talented. I still think Judah Mintz is the ACC Rookie of the Year. I think Joe Girard might uh, – there's a chance that he stamps his case for ACC Most Improved Player after last season averaging, what was it, like 13 or 14 again? I mean, actually, it might have been less. It might have only been 10 or 11 with Buddy Beheim and how well he played leading the ACC in scoring. So having 28 against Georgia Tech, if he can continue being consistent, which is something we hadn't seen out of Joe Girard before this season, uh, the guards are great. The forwards are much better because you don't have to rely on two because now you have like four that you can ultimately turn to if a couple aren't having their best games. So as a talented collective, yes, this team is a tournament team. But no, I can't say they are now because they haven't beaten enough good teams in order to make the tournament. I mean, any committee wouldn't put them in because eight of your 13 wins are against teams that uh, anyone in the ACC could blow out, even a Louisville, which is shocking to say. So, uh, no, right now this isn't a tournament team, but like I said, as a group and how they're constructed, I think they will be. Uh, We talked Malik and Benny a little bit. Uh, Let's touch on them more for for topic number three. Number three. Malik Brown, Benny Williams, the forwards, the most frustrating part of Jim Beheim's 47 years. If you believe that, then please do. I, I don't know if Jim believes that, but he's he's muttered it a bunch in press conferences. Uh, after Malik Brown's 18-point off-the-bench performance, I mean, the question marks still surround. Well, you're playing Chris Bell and Benny Williams to start off the game. It makes no sense when Malik is clearly the best for that system. I feel like this is the age-old question. We definitely have articles posted on theorangefizz.com, and please check them out. But Carter, uh, what's your opinion on this forward group at this point in time? I feel like this is an every-week thing, but might as well update it if Jim Beheim, that's all he's talking about during his pressers. Yeah, uh, this is this is the uh, the topic du jour, except it's a due year, <laughs> I guess, for this season. Uh, which is how Syracuse is going to get more production out of its forwards. Beheim has talked about it a lot, uh, but he, he talks about a lot of things that he doesn't do, and he hasn't really made the change necessary to solve this problem, which is the one that I believe, and you can go back and check the receipts on the orangefizz.com. I've written about it, and I've talked about it, and I will continue to write about it. Malik Brown should be a starter. I said that after the pit game when he had his first really good game, uh, which is was a little bit of a risk, but he's done his part and and helped prove me right on that topic. He's a very solid player, and and I I feel bad for Benny because the problem for Benny now is that he has two forwards on the team who are freshmen who each do something better than he can. Chris Bell is inconsistent. He's about as inconsistent as Williams, but he has a better shot. From the start, he is a shooter by role, and he's also better from outside. So he's got a little bit more offensive presence than does Williams. And then Malik Brown is just a better rebounder. He's better in the paint. He's better in the post. He's better in the block. He doesn't have as much offensive range, but the guy makes his shots. And you get the feeling that if he just plays more, he'll be a double-double machine because he's efficient with everything he does, taking up space, shots, rebounds every time he comes into the game it seems like things immediately go better carter but, he had 
he had four steals against Georgia Tech. Yeah, four that's steals. The, and consider that that's the thing that's flying under the radar. Everyone wants to talk about how he scored 18 points on, what, eight of nine shooting along with four rebounds, which has, isn't even his highest total of the season. But he's just taking what Georgia Tech is giving him. He had that bench stat that John Eads came up with. He's the guy who's getting all the attention as a freshman. And this must be very hard for Benny Williams to sit there on the bench and watch a guy who is essentially his replacement at power forward, tear it up. And like, I want to be as fair to Williams as I possibly can, because I like Benny Williams, right? I I don't want it to sound like I'm coming off. Like I don't like the guy. He is clearly a hard worker and a talented athlete who has really, you know, not let some pretty harsh treatment get to him, at least openly. Right. I think that he is now stuck in a situation that he cannot overcome. He can't emerge from this because what Malik is right now is kind of what we expected. The optimistic projections anyway, it's kind of what we expected Benny to be last year. Right. It was it was probably a little bit too lofty an expectation. But as the only recruit coming out of that class, you're really hoping looking at other freshmen come into other teams and make big differences that he could be that that he could be a a a dynamic rebounder in the paint and and kind of be what brown is but he's not uh there's just something lacking with benny i i really think that bayheim isn't helping him I, i don't think it helps anybody that he trots williams out there to start and yanks him after single digit minutes and then depending on what he didn't do that game he goes in the press conference and complains that he didn't do more of it, right? Like when Williams doesn't shoot, he's like, we need him to shoot more. And then when he goes out and uh, he shoots, it's, well, we need him to rebound more. And then against Georgia Tech, he had three rebounds in eight minutes, left the game and never came back, right? Isn't he doing what, what Beheim said he was supposed to do, which is focus on rebounding? That, that's, yeah. I mean, I know, I know he missed his shots against Georgia Tech, right? But if you keep taking them, you'll make them. You're bound to make something. You know, I I think that Williams has been a frustrating player, right? He's frustrating the coaching staff. But if that's the case, it's not fair to him to continue to start him and humiliate him because that's what Bayheim is doing. I mean, pure and simple is he's giving him chance after chance after chance. But it's clear that for one reason or another, and I think it's very much mental with Williams, I, I think that he is too concerned about making a mistake to just play his game. He can't play his game. You know, in that case, he he's become probably less confident than he was before the day he even stepped onto the court in a Syracuse uniform. And for that reason, I, I feel bad for him, but Malik's the guy. You know, Brown should start. This is a team that, like we just talked about, if it plays its best basketball and gets a couple upsets here and there over better teams, it could sneak its way into the tournament. And it's not going to do that starting Benny Williams to watch him score three points uh, in 10 minutes and then leave while the team falls behind and then has to come back when it puts Malik Brown and Justin Taylor into the game. That's not going to work against Duke or Miami or Virginia Tech or teams as good as those, right? You can get away with it down in Atlanta against Georgia Tech in front of what sounded like about 200 fans, but you're not going to get away with it against actual good teams. So it's time to stop. It's time to give Benny a break, and it's time to put Brown in the starting lineup. He is beyond good enough. I 100% agree. I think this era of Jim Beheim, 
he he's turned into a system adjustment coach. What I mean by that is a lot of the times coaches will have their philosophies, right? And Bayheim has them on defense, right? You're going to play zone, be hard nosed. You're yeah. If you're a wing in the zone, if you make a mistake, if you don't rebound, you're getting pulled and you're getting a stern talking to. And that's Ben Bayheim's philosophy. What I mean by an assist, a system adjustment coach is now that he is coaching younger guys, uh, those that are uh, that have a little more freedom to do what they do because the new school and the new era of game is more about individual talent than playing as a team. I mean, I always relay it back to the NBA and you look back at the NBA finals in the late 2010s and your starting center for like the Lakers was Pau Gasol. And now your starting center is a guy that could put up a triple double every single day, a guy that could throw a full court pass without looking and still be accurate. Like the talent discrepancy has changed so much. And Jim Beheim has been through all those eras. And the issue with Benny Williams is Williams fits a a specific system. Williams fits the system that he saw Buddy Beheim play, being the guy, the takeover. Unfortunately, Jim Beheim, because he's an assist a system adjustment coach, he would rather his players adjust to what the defense is giving them. And then he changes his offensive identity, that being Beheim, he changes his offensive identity on the fly. So if you need scoring and you need prowess off the jump and Bell is making his shots and Benny's making his mid-range, then you have offensive weapons in those two. But if it's a defensive game and more of a down-low presence game and he wants to get Jesse uh, the ball a little more and he and, or double start to trap Jesse, you're going to play Malik. So instead of this system that Jim Bam has always played in and thrived in, which is you have a stud, it's like a per-game stud. Benny Williams wanted to be that. He wanted to be the next Tyus Battle. He wanted to be, to be the next Tyler Ennis. He wanted to be the next Michael Benege. He wanted to be a name. And unfortunately, in this system that Syracuse is playing in, you cannot be a name anymore because teams are reading what Syracuse is giving them. On the defensive side, teams realize, okay, they're playing a zone. So we understand that we have to attack the wingers because they're young and they're not as seasoned. But Malik Brown plays like he's four years into college. So that helps Malik Brown and that aids him to play a little more than it does a Benny Williams who wants to take more risks. That's why Justin Taylor and Quittier Copeland find so much success at the bottom of the zone is they're more technically sound on defense. On the offensive side, what defenses will do is they'll either bull rush Joe Girard or they'll double Jesse Edwards. And for everyone else, they'll just kind of let it play out. So if Benny and Chris aren't having the best game and the ball is going into the interior a little more and there's a lot of attention on Jesse and they choose to double him, it opens things up for Malik. So Jim Bayon right now is adjusting his system and his philosophy based on what the defense is giving them because he knows he has so much individual talent. And unfortunately, that's not the way for Benny Williams. You cannot be the guy when you have Joe Girard, when you have Judah Mintz, when you have Jesse Edwards. You can't. You have to be an auxiliary piece. And unfortunately, Benny Williams is not. I agree with you. Malik Brown should be starting for all of those reasons and so many more.
That's my soliloquy on the forwards. And I hope the conversation ends one day because it's turning into, oh, Benny and Chris had bad games rather than Joe just had the game of his life. But we'll see what comes to fruition. Let's head to topic number four in the recruiting world. Number four. Syracuse recruiting spiced up a whole lot more due to, I think it was a couple weeks ago, and we talked about this in the last Fizz 5 uh, here on Orange Fizz, uh, about Adam Weitzman offering the seven-figure NIL deal to certain athletes uh, that would come to Syracuse. And, of course, he's not affiliated with the school, but let's be honest, he kind of is at that point. Uh, not officially, but he's either still offering the money and it'll be for philanthropy, whatever it may be. But the the men's basketball recruiting world just got shaken up by him because Syracuse looked dead in the water for the next two years in terms of recruiting on the scene. But now two players, according to Adam Weitzman, are not just coming to Syracuse and going to the North Carolina game on Tuesday, starting at 9 p.m., but also they'll have a separate sit down with Weitzman and talk about the role and talk about the community and all of the above. So Carter, our previous question before this news really surfaced was, you know, what's the, the current men's basketball recruiting target that catches your attention. But now with this news surfacing, is it one of those two or you still think that it's elsewhere that Syracuse should be focusing on? To me, it's it's still one of uh, one of those two guys, uh, and the one that I am sort of more focused on is uh, Elijah Moore, class of twenty twenty four. So he's a little bit down the line. He's a shooting guard uh, out of the Bronx, so not too far, right? Syracuse has gotten guys from you know down near the city before, and he fits the profile for you know a next guy up for Syracuse, someone from in-state, someone with a lot of talent uh, to come in and, and and be someone, not not unlike kind of what Judah Mintz is doing right now. Uh, SU is probably also looking at more guard depth, uh, you know, because Joe Girard is set to leave uh, pretty soon. Uh, and you have a lot of forwards on the team as well. That's the other, the other part of this. Uh, you know, a lot of freshmen in this class, you know, Chris Bell, Malik, uh, even Benny, if he sticks around as a sophomore, you know, he will also be a part of that mix too. So Syracuse not only needs guards just to be in its system because Quadir Copeland is really the only the only one who's in a reserve role right now. You don't know how long Mintz is sticking around and Gerard is going to graduate. Uh, but even more, especially so you need this guard because Syracuse can't go two classes without a single commit. That would be an issue. Especially because Beheim already said he, he went off on this tangent once in a postgame press conference. Nobody asked him. He just decided to tell everyone that we're focusing more on the class of 2024, not 2023, because I guess he had been reading about it and it had bothered him. But OK, if the team is fo- focusing on the class of 2024, then let's see the goods. Right. Let, let's see them really uh you know lay the press on and and go after someone who you know fits the team fits the mold and to me more is that guy right geographically works position wise works we've seen with Judah Mintz what kind of leash you can give to a freshman guard surrounded by some more experienced pieces I know not everyone's Judah Mintz but you know if you don't throw a guy into the deep end and uh he plays hard enough to maintain his starting role, then maybe good things can happen. Maybe Elijah Moore can be that guy. 
And uh, now Adam Weitzman has thrown his name into the ring, much like he did, um, you know, before with a a big time nil deal for Elliot Cadeau. It was correct. The uh, the guard out of uh, the class of twenty four, I believe, as well, who actually just ended up committing to UNC. You know, we we spoke about it, and then right after that was when he made his his decision. So Weitzman initially made waves with that. I don't know that the figures that he has offered um, to Moore and another prospect as well. I don't know if they're public, but I know that this morning, the the story about the uh, the things that he's put in place kind of got published to the actual reputable outlets. Uh, it just says that he's offered quote unquote major nil deals and obviously you know with weitzman major probably means we're talking you know six figures probably into the sevens as well um in this day and age that's enticing prospects that's part of what's going on so you know there are some things at play here i I think if you're a syracuse fan you have to at the very least pay attention uh to elijah moore as well because not only does he fit all that criteria but su made his top five in, in the commitment process. So he's winding down on that right now. Uh, Miami wants this guy. Arkansas wants this guy. Um, obviously, his talent is no joke. So for Syracuse, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You know, Weitzman pun sort of intended there uh, to, to get a, a commit finally in this next class after it ended up empty handed in uh in 23 at least so far you got to focus on 24 and i love you bringing up the guards uh i, I think some will think wait judiments yeah judiments is gone after next year in my opinion right like after this season there's a chance he goes to the draft so after next season there is no chance in heck that judiments is staying he shouldn't i mean with his talent I would go right to the NBA. You get a first round draft pick. And next thing you know, the potential is sky high. Even if you're playing on the Orlando magic, it doesn't matter. You're at least in the NBA and you're not stuck in a a collegiate system. Not to mention in terms of guards. I mean, you lose Joe and Symir and you have nobody. I mean, you, yes, you can move Justin to the two, but then again, like, who are you going to bring in the transfer portal? Do you think that is going to be your solid choice for the next couple of years? No. So I like the guards. I like Elijah Moore. I do. He also got a crystal ball prediction uh, on 247 Sports, which uh, might not seem as reputable as the as other sources are, but it, it is. I mean, the, a lot of the times that is correct, or at least 95, 96% correct. I know that... Uh, uh, fellow Fizz staffers Ian Unsworth and John Eads love their love their two four seven sports crystal ball predictions and and uh, Elijah Moore got one to Syracuse just uh, uh, just last week. Another player I want to focus on another guard that's also within that Adam Weitzman deal is a player that's gotten offers from Carolina, Alabama, Auburn. You talk about UConn, top ten in the country, even Florida, and and how they can progress in the SEC moving forward. And they're so great at growing combo guards into NBA prospects, and that's exactly what Boogie Fland is, uh, a player that's number. 
two in all of New York, ranked on 247 Sports as a five-star. He's 12th in the nation. There's also another 2024 guy. 6'3", 165 might not be the stature that that you'd, you'd want in, in, a, in a player that can take over a program, but what we've seen from Judah Mintz shows that skill often trumps that um, – uh, uh, the the strength that you would need that you can more shift toward your forwards, a guy that can just be attacking downhill. And I think that's exactly what Flan can offer uh, from White Plains. So also a, a guy who grew up just north of the city. So take over from a territorial perspective of your Syracuse, dominate the, the New York State recruiting scene. Uh, yeah, I, I like his game. Uh, I think he uh, he attacks with a purpose, which is not what a lot of guards do in this day and age. Judamins is one of them. And by that purpose, I mean not just to score, but to dish and get to the free throw line, which I think is often forgot. So out of those two, Moore and Flan, I think you need one of them, especially with this deal on the table, whatever it may be. You need one of them because if you don't, now you're staring NIL deals that are now available in central New York, which they weren't even when NIL started because it was all local businesses that weren't offering the figures of a USC and other schools. Now you're staring NIL deals right in the face. And if this doesn't work, Carter, if this doesn't work, I mean, now the transfer portal is your best friend. And unfortunately, Jim Beheim grew up in a day and age that was 40 years shy of the transfer portal. So you need one of the two of them. I want to focus more on Flan just because his prowess and how high his ranking is and the schools going after him. But I love Elijah Moore too. And, and Moore seems more destined for Syracuse because he got that crystal ball prediction. So that's a little more on the recruiting. Check out the orangefizz.com for our articles on that front. And we had to topic number five, talking a little bit of Syracuse football. Number five. As much as basketball has been the talk of the town, Football has been the talk of the departures. Um, Carter, I don't know what's happening. I'll be honest with you. Uh, well, I do, of course, because the, the the both the coordinators leave, and now you feel like there's some quarter, sort of ripple effect, and that's been the case. Fortunately for Syracuse, just about eight hours ago, Travis Fishers came over from Nebraska. He's the new cornerbacks coach. I don't know if Syracuse Carter of Syracuse has some deal with Nebraska where they'll send one and then Nebraska will send one back and then Syracuse will send another coordinator and then Nebraska sends a player just seems like there's a little corn husk uh corn husker there you go corn husker and orange connection um Carter do you think Syracuse can survive with all these assistant departures because now it's not a a coincidence now it's actually seems purposeful well, first of all, I'm tired of trading with Nebraska because <laughs> that team just went four and eight in the Big Ten. It was one of the worst teams in that conference. I don't want their damaged goods. I'll just <laughs> I, I'm tired of it. At the same time, right? It's good that you're at least getting assistance to fill these positions because what you're watching here for Syracuse is the disintegration of a staff. And really of a, of a program, you know, Syracuse's current iteration cannot survive. It, it it hasn't survived. It's it's gone now. And what I mean by that is kind of the, the Syracuse football team that we saw over the last two years. 2021 was you were building towards something better, a four-win improvement from a one-win year. You got the feeling that something better was coming up. 
And that's something better was 2022, a bowl season, seven and five regular season, pinstripe bowl. Didn't win it, but you still made a bowl, which doesn't happen all that often for this program anymore. But it's over now. The 2021-2022 thing, what you were building towards, if this was a different program that knew how to sustain itself and not eat its own limbs off every couple years, then it would be destined for better things. But unfortunately, like I said, in a, in a previous Fizz Five, it's Syracuse University in more ways than one, right? The assistants spend about four years here and then they go and get a real job. And that's what's happening to a lot of the, the assistants that were on the team in the past season. Um, you know, both coordinators, Robert and I, Tony White, they left even before the bowl. The uh, Nick Monroe is now gone as well. The guy who was supposed to replace White. Now, instead, you have Rocky Long here, the the veteran of the system from way out from New Mexico, which you know, say what you want about that hire. It might have been a bag fumble at this point. It's kind of hard to tell because Nick Monroe left and you saw the players were pretty unhappy about it. He helped recruit a lot of them. So we don't even know if more of them are going to leave or not. Mike Schmidt, the offensive line coach, was a recent one to go. That one really hurt because he was the architect of that renaissance on the front line the last two years that helped Sean Tucker become you know, a half joke, half serious Heisman contender coming into this season and, and built up an offensive line that was terrible the previous two years. He molded it into something good and now he's gone. Um, even, you know, before the, uh, the, the defensive backs coach came in, right. Half of Dino Babers, staff from the past season had, had left. They're gone. Uh, we've seen previously that assistants can make or break a head coach, right? There's a huge difference between what Robert and I was doing with this offense and the, um, you know, ghost pirate stew that Sterling Gilbert was cooking up for two years before him. Uh, you know, and now you've got a ton of turnover again. You're running the risk of someone not integrating the system properly, not being quite ready. Um, it's a pity, really, that, that Syracuse is just a feeder to other bigger fish in the college football world because this instability is familiar, and it's it's bad now, worse than it has been in a couple years. That's the sad case for SU football. I don't, I don't see how the Orange rise above it this year. And even if these staff pieces stayed, even if you want to talk talent, you have too many pieces leaving as well. Michael Jones, Matthew Bergeron, Sean Tucker – Garrett Williams, NFL pieces, not to mention transfer guys like Jihad Carter, Deuce Chestnut. This is a team that has just had its pockets picked by the rules and structure of college football. It's a sad reality because it was a fun team for two years, even though they didn't get to a bowl the first year of the last two, and they got to the pinstripe bowl this time. They don't have a win to show for it. This was a likable bunch, but now it's going to be unrecognizable uh, this fall. A mass exodus that proves one thing and one thing only that success can really only take you so far. And that you're right is the system of college football. You go five and four and you win what two of your next three and you're looking at a seven and five season, make a bowl game. And in my, uh, in my, in all honesty, I would consider that a success for a season 
for a team that's not expected to win eight, nine, 10 games. This past season, you start six and oh, you play a perfect first half against Clemson. I'm curious to know Syracuse wins nine or 10 games. Does everyone stay for the success? Because it seems that college football is turning in you, you turning into you don't stay for the success, you leave for the money. And that is the motto of college football. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, Syracuse didn't introduce itself as a part of the hierarchy and that being the upper echelon early enough and welcome to the new era of college football, which is the mass exodus for teams that underperformed for teams that didn't prove that they could be a football school. Their fate was decided by NIL, the transfer portal and the new rules and how easy it is to dole out a million or $2 million to anyone. Syracuse didn't cash in at the right time. And as it seemed, they were just about to, they fumbled the bag and what happened exactly what's happening to every mid-major or low power five team. And that's the mass exodus of you're going to lose coaches. You're going to lose players. And how do you respond? Well, maybe there is no response. And that's just the reality of college football. No, Syracuse can't survive. They, they are in the lower echelon of teams in terms of talent and potential. And even though they had individually gifted players, they fell victim to the new era of college football, which is it's easy to enter the transfer portal. It's easy to make a lot more money as a coach and now even easier to make a lot more money as a player. And unfortunately, Syracuse just didn't reach that threshold soon enough. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next couple seasons, I mean, that threshold is lowered for Syracuse, but keeps keeps hiring for uh, um, and raising for uh, a lot of the good, good, and really, really great college football teams out there. So I think we agree on that front. Carter, I wish I didn't agree with you on that one, but that's the nature of Syracuse football. And we'll see what happens with Syracuse basketball moving forward. But that wraps things up here on Fizz 5. For Carter Bainbridge, I'm Cameron Ezere. Check out our articles on theorangefizz.com. And again, keep listening to all our Fizz 5s as we break down the five hottest topics in Syracuse sports over the past week. We'll catch you next week with a different crew. And Carter and I will be back with you in about three weeks to a month. Hope everyone enjoys their morning and the rest of their day, and we will catch you later. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.